Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. One of the major issues with current events and the media is the desire to package concepts into a homogeneous story that largely ignores anything outside the established norm. This is definitely the case with how Appalachia is seen by many. In her book, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia, Elizabeth Catt not only breaks down this stereotype by presenting a more nuanced picture of the region, but also shows that the people who live there value their heritage and work to make their lives and the lives of others better. Welcome, Elizabeth Catt. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for talking with me. I know you've been incredibly busy, and I'm glad we found the time. Hey, I'm so happy to talk to you today. Now, your book interested in me for a number of reasons. One of my personal areas of research is media, both historical and current, and you definitely had interesting points to say about how both print and mass media covers Appalachia. However, I also was interested, since I live in northeastern Kentucky, right on the Ohio and West Virginia borders. I've seen many of the issues that media discuss when they talk about the area, but I also know there are many things that don't fit into their accepted narrative and isn't covered. For example, right now we're right in the middle of the West Virginia teacher strike, and uh, as we're recording this, and it's still not getting the coverage that I think it deserves. So that's one of the other reasons I thought this was a pretty good time to talk. But let's talk about your background, what's your educational and other experiences that particularly made this topic so important to you? Um, So my my education is uh, I am a public historian. I have a PhD in public history. And public history is just kind of a different variety of history. It's mainly um, geared towards helping the public use um, history in their day-to-day lives uh, in ways that are richer, fuller, um, and more useful to them. I am from East Tennessee, which is, um, I like to say that I'm from Dolly Parton country, so that helps people um, place me in the world. Um, I've lived in Appalachia almost my entire life. I've had dips in and out of the region for employment or for school, but um, I consider myself a native. Uh, My family has lived in the region for several generations. So that's me, and that's why um, it was important for me to to, uh, start writing about Appalachia. It's funny because I actually was born and raised in Cleveland, so I know the Rust Belt. But for the last years, I've been in Appalachia first in Alabama, although that was very different from what I'm experiencing here in Kentucky. So Yeah. Well, people confuse Appalachia and the Rust Belt um, all the time. And, you know, of course, there are uh, places where they do overlap, like Pittsburgh um, and some of the places in Ohio are good examples of that. But, um, yeah, people, people don't have great geography when it comes to deciphering, like, the key differences between our regions. And, of course, politics makes that even more complicated. To say nothing of the fact is that one of the things, and this was before I really started looking in Appalachia when I was in Alabama, when I first moved there, we discovered quite quickly all the uh, concepts that the North just didn't understand the South were true. <laughs> talking to yeah. family and you know, thinking that, you know, we were down in 
who knows what in in rural you know everything was just you know <laughs> dirt roads and stuff just completely flew through you because you just never saw it till you actually lived in it and saw how people reacted sometimes so i'm seeing some of the same things here mm. so the book uh what led you to decide it was time or, you know to, to to write this book i know it was it started in some ways as a out out growth of the election, the, the presidential election of 2016, but there's obviously more to it than just that. So, But um, what led you to decide that this was something you wanted to write? Well, actually, the decision was kind of made for me. Um, what happened was I had written a couple of blog posts and I'd gone on Twitter rants and this, that, and the other about um, the, the narrative that was forming around the 2016 election and the popularity of Hillbilly Elegy. And I was contacted by Ann Trubeck, who is uh, the director, the founder of Belt Publishing, which is based in Ohio. And she was experiencing a lot of the frustrations that I was experiencing, but particular to the Rust Belt. Um, so she was frustrated with parachute journalism. She was frustrated with being um, you know, a regional voice uh, and at a time that regional voices were, were being ignored. Um, and so we decided to, um, I suppose, let those frustrations go out, live out in the world a little bit more boldly. And so um, she asked me if I'd be interested in writing uh, the, these thoughts that I was uh, putting on a blog or, you know, on social media into uh, more of a, an essay collection. And I said, sure. And we worked it out very quickly. Um, and I honestly thought that, here, probably a year and a half after the election, that some of the, the material that I wrote about would seem dated, um, even though we we rushed to get the book out um, as quickly as possible. But the surprising thing is that is they don't. Um, we're still seeing like weird narratives about Trump country and the election and Appalachia. Um, now is a little bit different since we're having the, the teacher strike, but we still see uh, also JD Vance all over the news and um, you know speculation about his potential. Uh, run for politics or just the, you know, the philanthropy that he is starting and his engagements in the Rust Belt. So every, you know, almost everything that, that I wrote about that frustrated me a year and a half ago is still around. That's not a surprise. Unfortunately, <laughs> most narratives take a long time to break. I, yeah. I recently interviewed someone who wrote a book about the film Thelma and Louise. And of course, at the time, the big issue was when that movie came out was women being empowered in Hollywood and that movie yeah, was, you're right. it didn't exactly happen right away so it's interesting that the topic's coming up again but you, as you see the narrative is tough to break so Ex I'm yeah sorry. exactly no 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 I was just going to concur absolutely um we have some really kind of enduring narratives in Appalachia and I think you're right that maybe my surprise um you know is a little naive but I'm also, and, and you have, you know, perspective on this, but the media is particularly fast paced now, more fast paced than it used to be, certainly. Um, and it feels like any kind of narrative or take that is produced generates almost a counter take quite quickly. So in that regard, I think it is a little bit surprising that the narrative of Appalachia has endured in the way that it, that it has. So we shall see. We shall see um, the narrative of the teacher strike, as we just already talked about might be something that causes uh, it to flip. Well, and that's where your book is interesting because it is starting to, I have seen more and more publicity of it outside of the 
more obvious places. And I think you even had a little bit of a blurb in the New Yorker of all places. I did, so, yeah. maybe, <laughs> so maybe that will help to maybe we can have this discussion on a wider frame. And I think those of us who live in this area have to do our part to make sure that it uh, continues to be a discussion rather than sure. the, the stereotypes and everything like that. <clears throat> so the book, as you said, it was it was not a rush, but it was certainly done quickly. And I think it, the nice thing is is that it's it it's just well developed as a clear what your points are, and you have lots of evidence. And frankly, one of the things I'm going to mention later is your list of resources in the back, which mm -hmm. I found there. Those are the things that I'm going to be coming back to to say, okay, what else do I want to read, and what else do I need to see? And so that that alone showed the depth of the information that you were able to use to help you with some of this. Mm -hmm. But your objectives, according to the way I read it, was first off, who who benefits from the omission of the real story or the complete story of the area? And but a second, more positive thing to try to celebrate the people, the lives of the people who were in this area and over time and and currently, do I sort of have that pretty much correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know when. It's important to understand that this book, um, although it speaks to specific narratives, it's not about one particular person and it's not about one particular um, moment in time. It's, a, it's, a, it's about a, a pattern of abusive power that seems to circulate in the re region. That means it is, for example, um, much easier to get rich talking about me as an Appalachian talking about Appalachians um, than it is for Appalachians to invest in themselves, if that makes sense. So for example, um, you know, JD Vance has enormous speaking fees. Um, we've, <laughs> we did some calculations of his speaking fees and kind of figured out that he makes more in one hour than it costs to, um, you know, finance my entire, the entire cost of my PhD. So I want to comment on, on that kind of power. Um, but, but outside of that, to push back and to celebrate um, the lives and actions of people who have lived in the region, um, people who self-identify as Appalachian, who brought um, activism, radical engagement to the region to do harm reduction, to um, protect the environment, to protect labor. Yeah, and, and you talk about a lot of that, particularly in the third part of the mm -hmm. book, where you that's the part where you really are doing the celebration and some of the things you talk about there and some of the things I've found, and turns out they were things that you mentioned, such as WMMT, for example, and, and mm -hmm. the work they do to get to be to be a different voice and a voice that that's definitely needs to be heard out of this area. So the first book, part of the book, besides after the introduction, you then get into your three parts of the book and part one Appalachia and the making of Trump country which uh, I did a lot of looking into other things after I read through your points because mm -hmm. you, you know obviously you made some very good points about the the mistake or the, the this narrative that somehow if it wasn't for Appalachia Trump wouldn't have been elected president right that is yeah that's one of the weirdest I mean <clears throat> What I would explain to people is that Appalachians were certainly on the bus um, that were it was about to crash the country into the wall that is Donald Trump, but they weren't driving it. Um, and this is, you know, something that needs to be acknowledged, not from a defensive position, but just um, 
one that that adds some much needed nuance to the way that we understand politics. For example, the you know the big objection I have to that narrative is we need to understand certain things about the relationship between voting and civic engagement and poverty. Um, and that is, you know, the, the closer you are to poverty, especially when you have additional burdens like legal um, legal issues or addiction, the less likely you are to vote or to, to participate in civic engagement. So to present a region, and keep in mind, it wasn't that they were going to places like Knoxville, Tennessee, um, an Appalachian city where I'm from, that's quite urban, that there's a good, um, there's a there's a mix of sort of demographics and, and income distribution levels. They were going, reporters from mainstream outlets were going to the poorest places in, Appal- in Appalachia, particularly in Southern West Virginia, which is um, historically West Virginia's coal fields. So they were going to, to these places to produce a political phenomenon to say like, this is what is driving the bus and it just doesn't square with everything that we know about the relationship between poverty and voting behavior, and indeed the results um, post-election bore that out. Right. You gave some statistics that showed the percentage of people who voted at all was so small. And um, then you can, I mean, just looking at a map, as I did afterwards, where I looked at the electoral map for the 2016 election, and I said, okay, yeah, there's red all the way through the Appalachian areas. But what about all this red up north and all this red in the mid Midwest, where there's a lot more electoral votes, and therefore, why don't they get the quote-unquote blame for Trump? Right. Well, if you're somebody who cares about politics, so I do political organizing um, as well, um, these things matter to you. So it matters to me if I'm trying to work with a community and I'm dealing with people who voted for Trump, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with people who voted for Clinton, or I'm dealing with people who just didn't vote at all. That makes a tremendous difference um, to the way that I want to strategize with that community or strategize about that community. And the situation in many parts of Appalachia, but particularly these parts that appeared over and over in the media as the heart of Trump country, um, the narrative more accurately is there, I didn't vote country. Um, and so when, you know, when I am thinking about different ways to uh, increase civic engagement, things of that nature, that story and what those numbers are distilled from, from you know, these percentages and manipulations matter a lot to me. Right. And like I say, it's just it's it's become a regional, you know, that somehow this region is is the reason and of course that's nothing new unfortunately from some of the discussion and in fact much of the introduction in the first part is gives a nice historical background of the area uh, including how it became a political or economic uh, structure and you meant you talk in the introduction about the uh, the, the the organization that supposedly decides you know that that lists who's in considered an Appalachia and I think I just did that where I said it twice two different ways <laughs> but and and including areas that didn't want to be identified as part of Appalachia right so I live in um, I'm not from this area but I currently live in the Shenandoah Valley Virginia and this is um, like one foot in one foot out of Appalachia because Appalachia had to be created um, as a specific entity. And that occurred in 1965 um, through an organization called the Appalachian Regional Commission that was created as part of um, a collection of efforts that fall under the umbrella of the war on poverty. Uh, so, you know, they had to define, um, and of course they they used, you know, cultural or historical or geographical 
geographic boundaries too, but but primarily they were like, okay, so these are the, you know, Appalachia is poverty and poverty is Appalachia. And so some areas like the Shenandoah Valley uh, just didn't want to be any kind of part of that. They didn't want to be identified um, as, you know, the poor parts of the United States. So they opted out. So it's complicated. Defining Appalachia is complicated, but what we do have is that, that enduring imprint that poverty is defined by a region and a people. And that's us. Right. Yeah, I lived in Birmingham in Alabama, which is Boyd, or excuse me, is Jefferson County, which based on the ARC information is part of Appalachia, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same feeling, for example, as you might, as you pointed out, like Knoxville being mm-hmm. more urban and that's the way Birmingham is, but you get a little bit farther away and it becomes a little more obvious where here in right. Kentucky, it's, it's much more um, clear that it's, uh, you know, is more the stereotype of what Appalachia is. Yeah. And most people, I mean, we, we kind of geographically define Appalachia as three regions, you know, Southern, Central and Northern Appalachia. So 90% of what I talk about or discuss is going to be um, Central Appalachia, which is, you know, the more mountainous parts of Appalachia, um, where the majority of uh, coal communities used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, that's my that's my Appalachia, but there are many different Appalachias that, that people identify or connect to as well. Right. So when you discuss the background or the history of the area, and, and I really did appreciate that. It was a nice, it's only a few pages, but it really did. That kind of mm-hmm. background is, I think, helpful for anybody that wants to learn more about Appalachia in the first place. And you go all the, you go back to where the narratives first start, including Hatfield. <laughs> the most obvious example was the Hatfield-McCoy um feud which is still you know it's one of those things that Appalachia still <laughs> is, is right. saddled with yeah um, we have some very I mean we have very enduring narratives of Appalachia my argument is that um, so many of these these narratives are attached to um, the ways that powerful people wanted to make money you know from the region they wanted to extract resources um, they wanted to bring the local populations um, into a compliant labor force, and so myths and stereotypes really help them. Uh, really help them in that they presented Appalachians as sort of doomed without intervention, as you know, our poverty was something that was innate, um, that was you know attached to our culture, to our moral character. So that when they came along with mines and mills and coal camps, um, it would, made it easier for them to make the case that they were bringing something benevolent. Uh, to the region, modern capitalism, uh, modern employment uh, that would benefit the people who lived there, um, who would be doomed to be, you know, sort of savage otherwise. And, and you know, the Hatfield-McCoy is probably, the Hatfield-McCoy feud is probably one of the best examples of that because it was a real, you know, it was a real historic event that occurred, but it became so legendary because it really did a lot to sell uh, central Appalachia, particularly West Virginia and Kentucky, as uh, a you know a place that was you know full of bloodshed, savagery, things like that, um, made it easier that the region made it easier to make the case that the region needed order, law, um, modern you know modern modernity and progress. And that's the next part that comes in with what you were what you discuss in this background is that um, the so-called paternal aspect of these 
moguls who move in just because they want the resources but know they need people to do the work so it suddenly becomes this narrative that these folks need to be taken care of that they need somebody to take care of them and that they don't know any better and so we have to go in and and care for them but also as you say get lots of work out of them right and those narratives um aren't specific to Appalachia. People had those attitudes, powerful people, rich people had those attitudes and beliefs about many demographics um, and poor people. It just happened that, um, you know, the resources that they wanted were concentrated in this one particular place. So the narratives and geography and myths work together um, in a way that's a little bit unique, but it's also important to, to for people to understand this is, you know, social Darwinism. These are attitudes um, that were deployed, you know, aggressively against all people who were poor or different. And unfortunately, they were able to use those narratives to always, uh, you know, for their benefit, almost 100 percent. And even though they said they were helping others. You, it wasn't like it really was was happening because strikes did happen, and they're not that and not that long ago even, and so the people started to figure out that they weren't necessarily being taken care of and needed to possibly try to take care of themselves. Right, the system of labor that outsiders brought and compliant compliant local elites um, helped with is hugely exploitive. Um, People rarely worked for wages. They would work for, you know, credit that they could use to um, buy provisions at, at, you know, a company store, things like that. Um, armed guards populated coal camps. So any kind of whiff of strike action or labor organizing, um, you know, you would get, you know, potentially get shot. Um, they would menace uh, coal company guards with menace wives, menace children with machine guns. Um, it was a very, very dangerous environment. It was a coercive environment. Um, and that resulted in, you know, as we just said, some of the most important strikes and industrial actions of uh, the 20th century. But it also meant that when things started to change, when the coal industry started to wane, or is starting to started to wane, um, the people who were obviously going to be the most affected were the people were the workers, and unfortunately, they're still being led to believe that if it wasn't just for that federal government and their restrictions, we could still have coal going and you could still have jobs. Yeah, coal industry public relations is incredibly complicated, um, and coal industry propaganda starts uh, at a very young age. For example, Friends of Coal, which is a coal lobby group um, that's particularly active in Kentucky and West Virginia, you know, gets gets into the schools, you know, as early as the kindergarten level, um, and tries to plant a narrative of what coal is and what coal does, and this alternate history of the relationship between coal and the environment and labor in Appalachia. But it's, I mean, we've, it's important to, to understand there's never been a rosy picture of coal in Appalachia. It's always been accompanied with strife and coercion and, um, you know, oppressive labor, labor environments. Um, it's, I mean, it's generally true that, um, what can I say about that? So 
coal in Appalachia has always been sort of artificially deflated in terms of price because we have a we produce a very uh, expensive type of coal here. So the the difference is made up with workers' wages and things like that. So people have always been working for very cheap so that the coal producers can sell the coal uh, more cheaply and compete with other markets like in the uh, in the West and, and, and Midwest. Um, and so that creates this, <laughs> this really unhealthy cycle where either coal is in um, tension with the worker or coal is in tension with the, you know, and later in our history, the environment, such as things like mountaintop removal. Right. But there's always tension um, between between coal and the people or coal and the environment. Um, and it shifts a lot. So sometimes it's hard to see. And of course, uh, things like mountaintop removal have changed the way that we think about coal a lot and the way that labor uh, the relationship between labor and coal, because what we have now in modern Appalachia is um, it takes very little labor to mine coal comparatively to other other points in our history. Um, it's mechanized, uh, automated. It's it is competing with other forms of energy such as natural gas. So we're looking at the functional end of coal. I think most people would would agree within uh, about fifty years. Yeah, I took a geology course to take care of a ma uh, an elective in undergrad, and one of the things the instructor consistently talked about is that you know these non-renewable resources are finite, and um, we will reach a point where they will all be basically gone, and um, coal just happens to probably be one of the first to go. Right, um, but. When we acknowledge that, it's also important to think about, well, what will be next for the region after the functional end of coal? It's it's not like there's a lot of interest politically into developing clean energy strategies for Appalachia. More likely what will happen is that um, powerful people connected to the coal industry are also connected to oil and natural gas. And so the region will just be recycled into a, uh, a fracking hub because, um, and you might know this based on where you live, but there's, you know, so many kind of shale deposits, especially near the Ohio Valley. And so coal 2.0 is probably just going to be, um, you know, fracked gas. And this is something that we also see in the history of Appalachia is that we get to the end of a certain type of extraction and we celebrate, and then something much worse um, comes along. So we had, you know, extractive coal mining that just through the, you know, the through mines, and then we had strip mining, which was bad, and then mountaintop removal came along, and now uh, the functional end of coal will probably be a replacement for uh, for fracking, which again doesn't solve any of the problems that we had uh, specific to the coal industry. But as you say, the powerful people are in charge, including how much, I mean, what, what I'm pretty sure with the governor of West Virginia, was he a coal magnate? I forgot. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's a he's a billionaire um, from the coal industry. Joe Manchin, who is the, you know, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, has gotten rich off the coal industry, too. Um, it's, it's really hard to find politicians in Appalachia that are independent. Um, from from energy markets and energy and coal and gas and 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 uh, those kinds of markets. Yeah, and even in your introduction at the very beginning, when you talk about your brief uh, living in Texas, 
you gave an you know that's oil but it's there were a lot of similarities to the the fact of the matter is the people were getting rich and the people who were suffering because of that is are always going to end up being the people and the illnesses that are in Appalachia maybe are different from the illnesses in Texas but they're still illnesses yeah, exactly. My time um, living in Texas has made me very concerned for the future of Appalachia, uh, particularly an idea. I don't know if you remember, but um, Donald Trump just signed uh, back in November, I think, a, a multi-billion dollar memorandum of understanding with a Chinese energy company. And that was to um, set in motion plans and development that would turn West Virginia into uh, an oil and gas hub much like the Gulf Coast of Texas, because of course, um, as we learned recently with Hurricane Harvey, but also um, you know natural disasters in years past, that it's you know there are certain dangers that have your your um, you know your oil production tied so heavily to a place that is you know battered by the environment. So there's a lot of interest in moving um, distribution further inland. And of course, since West Virginia has a reputation as the extraction state, unfortunately, this is where a lot of interest is being directed. Um, and it makes me very, very concerned um, based on what I know about Appalachia, but also my experience living on the Gulf Coast. So the rest of part are more of part one than the, the these this where you tried to define what they, you know, what Appalachia and the Trump country, so to speak. One of the other things you get into quite a bit is is the racial component, which, of course, um, the stereotype of Appalachia being, you know, poor white and, you know, that racial differences aren't there. And yet you were, uh, you showed pretty quickly that that wasn't the case. What were some of the things that you saw that you think went and will go against the narrative well, so most places in Apple, I mean, um, there are places like Knoxville where I lived and you mentioned Birmingham, which are racially diverse mm-hmm. uh, in their own right. Um, but even excluding the more metropolitan parts of Appalachia, like Birmingham and Knoxville and Pittsburgh, um, you see that there are few parts of Appalachia that are truly all white. Um I, I think I used the example that there are more people in Appalachia who identify as African-American than Scotch-Irish. So this is something that I think people should really think hard about, um, especially in the last year. Everything It seemed like everything we were reading was something that had to do with, oh, let's you know explain why Appalachia is the way it is and look at like what's you know the characteristics of Scotch-Irish culture. These are kind of weird things, uh, weird things to do, in my opinion. What we have in Appalachia is um, a lot of depopulation. And so for lots of reasons, um, young people especially, you know, tend to migrate outside the region. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. So our populations are always in a bit of a flux. But what we can say is that since about 1990, the fastest growing populations in Appalachia are African-American and Latino. And these tend to be um, two demographics that are younger. Um, And so they're more likely to stay in the region, but also have families. So if you are living in Appalachia today, there's a good chance that you are living um, among the most racially diverse generation of Appalachians um, since the time that um, sort of coal production was at a peak and you had lots of people uh, involved in in those industries. So on one hand, we can say that, you know, definitely Appalachia is still white majority in most places, 
we can, but we can also say that, you know, we have this, this unique quality, which is that um, our populations are growing quite quickly more diverse. And we need to square those a little bit more in the narratives that people want to tell and talk about in Appalachia. It's, if you talk to people who are people of color in Appalachia, I mean, many times they'll speak of sort of a double invisibility. Um, there's just the the invisibility that unfortunately people of color seem to suffer from in this country, but also the double the invisibility of being um, completely written out in some cases of the narratives of the region. They're in other, within an other, um, and we need to do everything that we can to make much more room in our narratives uh, to talk about those experiences, um, the experiences of, of um, people of color, but also trying to, which is what I do a little bit more of in my book, rationalize and think about why uh, people want to believe so intensely that Appalachia is an all-white place. Yeah, and like I say, that's so much of the narrative, as you pointed out, that was going on during the election period where it seemed like that's what they were looking for when they came in, the, the various <laughs> reporters and, and news news organizations, not, not just... Uh, and of course, you point out quite a bit, both in your other writing and in the book. It's not just the mass, you know, the TV and and the TVs uh, station or networks that are doing that news networks, but also print journalists are just as, uh, in many cases, just as bad at it. Right, and um, you know, one of the missing stories in this is is what our relationship here in, in Appalachia has been to the media um, in 2016, because as someone who is not in the media, but is you know a little bit adjacent to the media, I mean, I can, we can tell you horror stories about getting like phone calls from reporters who, you know, say, I, I want to speak to a coal miner. I want to speak to an unemployed coal miner. And you're like, I don't know how I can help you with that. We don't have it. You know, I'm not from a coal producing part of Appalachia. Or you mean you don't calls. have a Rolodex of people? Yeah. That you yeah. Or, um, you know, I want to speak to an African-American person, but only if they supported Donald Trump. Um, so these are the kind of calls that we would, that we had been getting um, for just months and months during the elections. And, one of the things that I think is really fascinating, if you, if, you know, if somebody in the media, if you, somebody is listening that's like, you know, a journalism student, um, to read a couple articles about Appalachia and then Google the names of the people who are interviewed. And what you will see is that they're the same subjects over and over and over again, um, who just uh, appear as, you know, representative of this Trump country phenomenon. But you know, the faces, you know, the, the faces and subjects don't don't change. So not only are we being represented by like a single narrative, but sometimes a single person uh, just over and over and over again in these articles. And it's really fascinating. And unfortunately, it's not just Appalachia that deals with this. If, one of the things is you if you do any kind of look at, at media is this concept that when it comes to certain topics, people have become quote unquote experts and they're the ones that get quoted constantly. And unfortunately, without knowing their background, you don't even know for sure what they're you know what they're uh, what they're trying to say and what they're trying to who's supporting them. And that's often the case. Absolutely. So um, then let's let's go on to part two, because this is uh, obviously, as we've already talked about, the book 
was somewhat a reaction to Trump to the Trump election, but just as importantly, I think J.D. Vance's book Hillbilly Elegy, which you've already mentioned briefly, had a lot to do with uh, why you felt it was important to write this book. So, just in a you know as briefly as you can, what did hell? How bad? Or not bad. Let's try <laughs> this again. Why was Vance's points with Hillbilly Elegy? just so badly off track? I think something, uh, so when I make criticism about Hillbilly Elegy, of course it is like very specific to Hillbilly Elegy, but I also want people to understand um, this pattern that occurs in Appalachia where it feels like every generation and sometimes more so um, Appalachia is discovered by um, the outside world. And you can go back to the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1930s, and you will find um, Appalachian educators particularly talking about this. Don West is a famous example. He co-founded the Highlander Folk School. He wrote a lot about this kind of like weird pattern where people discover Appalachia and then, you know, set to the task of explaining it to other people. And sometimes those explainers are people outside the region. Sometimes they're uh, people who are connected to the region but feel that they are, you know, above it. And so this is the pattern that I see uh, reemerging as J.D. Vance has claimed the title of um, the Appalachian Explainer-in-Chief. So, and it's also important to understand that, that sometimes this happens and it's not necessarily a big deal. I mean, because of course we've experienced this before, but there is something very um, specific and unsavory about what J.D. Vance does. And from my perspective, that is he brings back old arguments about racial determinism and repackages them um, to talk about a poor white population. So if you've read Hillbilly Elegy, you'll notice that he's very um, interested in explaining what hillbilly culture is. He's uh, very interested in connecting to the, pro the problems that he sees with hillbilly culture to this um, what he th what he presents as an over exaggeration of Scotch Irish influence a shared ethnic heritage. Um, and these are very, very disturbing ideas. They come um, from, you know, many, they have a really dark history, a really grim history, specifically in, in Appalachia. These, these ideas like, you know, never end up, you know, never, never have a happy ending. But in Appalachia, they have a uh, particular narrative that sometimes lands people, in, you know, in eugenics institutions and things like that. So, I was very disturbed to see people from Vox Media, the New York Times, all these mainstream publications that interviewed J.D. Vance or reviewed Hillbilly Elegy, sort of not challenging or even finding worthy of comment the idea that J.D. Vance has introduced, um, reintroduced racial determinism to the language that we talk about when we want to talk about poverty. And the problem is not only uh, this dark history that I've alluded to, but the idea that once you do that and you introduce poverty as something that is innate or naturally occurring among, among certain demographics, um, you absolve yourself of the responsibility to relieve it. And so this is a very powerful thing that the, that the memoir does as well. It says, you know, it's okay that um, these problems have occurred. We want them to go away, but we also need to understand that the people did this to themselves. Right, takes away the responsibility to do anything about it because it's their fault. So what right, are you exactly. To do about it. I know you recently made an appearance at uh, West Virginia University, mm -hmm. and with I don't know, I don't know enough to know whether you actually were in the, at the same time with him or separately. 
Oh, no, I didn't. I was part of, I think, um, the same general festival. So they have something called the Festival of Ideas, but it spread out um, across several weeks. So we did not even appear in the same you know, week. Um, I came about a week later after J.D. Vance had appeared. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely I spoke soon after him, but we did not have any kind of contact. What kind of reaction did you get? I mean, obviously it was a university, so I'm going to guess that uh, it might have been different than, say, in a in a different format. But did you feel what kind of things did you from talking to people? How was he? How do people react to him? In his uh, <laughs> so, I mean, understanding and acknowledging that, um, I mean, nobody is really going to come up to me and say, I absolutely love J.D. Vance. I think he's great. Right. Um, but uh, I mean. I think there's a general fatigue happening now towards JD Vance um, that is not even specific to some of the ideas that he has. They've just deduced that he, um, I mean, he's oversaturated. So he's made appearances at tons of universities, TED Talks, all this other kind of, you know, things. So people, people know his ideas. They're familiar with his ideas. They're not really excited to hear them anymore, regardless of, you know, what they, what they are. It's just, you know, you get to the point where you're like, okay, uh, something else, please. Um, the reaction to my talk was great, but of course, keep in mind, I'm um, appearing at West Virginia University as an incredibly pro-labor right. um, individual, very uh, transparent about my politics. And I'm appearing there on the second day of a historic labor stoppage, work right. stoppage. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that regard, um, the timing could not have been uh, better to kind of make that personal connection and appear in a place like Morgantown, West Virginia, because it was just such an overwhelming um, historic moment happening all around me. So the third part of the book is meant to be more of a celebration in many ways of the area of the people called land justice people. What areas did you purposely want to make sure you included? How did you decide what to include in this third part? Um, So what I wanted to do with the first three parts of the book is – make the case that the narrative of Appalachia for the past 100 years has been developed strategically and to omit certain voices. So in the third part, it was important to me to really hit people kind of upside the head with um, all the things that they've been missing when they've looked at Appalachia through these tired and stale stale narratives. Um, I, I selected stories and vignettes that were just important to me personally, to me personally, um, stories that I sort of held in my head and in my heart, uh, when I had sort of rough, you know, rough moments when I was questioning, um, a way forward for the region politically and economically. I wanted to showcase people who a self-identified as Appalachia but also identified themselves as people um, who built solidarity around a common struggle. And this has been really important to me um, in writing the book, but also talking about the book. I want people to know that there is, there is a heritage that we share in Appalachia. And it's not like some weird Scotch-Irish bloodline nonsense. And it's not about how long you've been in the region or who, you know, if you had to leave and if you had to come back or how long your family has been living in a certain place, it's about the way that we have supported each other through the struggles that we share. Um, and so I wanted to introduce people like Ollie Combs and Eula Hall um, and the Highlander Folk School, people who uh, really believed in that message as well, that um, we are all working together in a shared struggle. 
a couple of the examples, like I say, you, you, some of them are historical and some of them are more current events, which is sort of nice because it means that you get a little bit of both. And, and some of them are books, some of them are just different things that I really think do a great job of, of illustrating. And, and um, what's, um, what are some of your current, what, what you would consider to be current aspects of Appalachia, based on particularly as you've developed the book, that you think are particularly positive things to say about the area? Um, so I really enjoy, uh, Appalachia has a strong tradition of community media. And these uh, is characterized by, you know, people coming together with not a lot of tools at their disposal, but really making um, important documentation and creative work um, that captures the spirit of the region. So um, I always love to see what is coming out of Whitesburg, Kentucky, which is home to Apple Shop, which is a documentary um and media organization. They have a sister radio station, WMMT, that we've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's a great podcast called The Trillbillies that kind of comes out of, of Whitesburg as well. So when I want to think, um, you know, find positivity and uplift, uh, I see what's going on in, in those regions because not only are they producing um, new narratives, they're also trying to connect people um, again, in the shared struggle that we have and people organize, do political organizing and, and social justice organizing through Apple Shop. And um, the example that I use in the book is around uh, prison abolition mm -hmm. uh, and connecting um, the families of incarcerated individuals with resources to help them stay in touch uh, with their loved ones. And that's, uh, that's a great example. Um, also, I really, um, it's important, the work that the Ohio Valley Resources uh, sorry, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition, uh, the work that they're doing to put the brakes on the, uh, the West Virginia oil and gas hub, the fracking hub, um, because the work of, of their organization, you know, often they're, they're fighting um, potentials that are very disturbing. But I think what's important about the work that they do is how often they win. Um, so when I want to see, uh, you know, a happy ratio, I, I look at the work that they do. Um, I'm also a big fan of the work that's done by the Catholic Committee of Appalachia. And uh, particularly one thing that they do that's been so tremendous is, um, you know, every every decade they, or, or maybe even uh, less, less frequently than that, but they produce a pastoral. They are the, the keepers and the producers of a liberation theology. And I think even if you're not a person who is Catholic or, or even religious, um, seeing the region through their eyes um, mm. and all their all their writings are available online is really hopeful and really beautiful. Yeah, we've. I know when I was living in Cleveland, there were there were pockets of areas in there that that were doing similar work, and it's great that. Uh, that we're seeing it in Appalachia as well. I know I first heard of WMMT by an article, I forgot where I read it now, that discussed their prison work that on Monday nights, for example, they play recordings from uh, people where with, with incarcerated individuals so that a way to get the basic little bits of communication out. And it just seemed like Hmm. It, it made you think, oh, well, it is a problem. Communication is a big issue and for these folks. And 
what what they do on Monday nights, and I've listened to it a couple times. It's mm-hmm. very, it's very in some ways uh, matter of fact. Most of the conversations you don't even understand because it's probably more personal stuff. But mm-hmm. it just sounds like okay. Well, this is something that's serving a purpose. Yeah, exactly. It's really good work, and um, the area that w- WMMT is based is still one of the most concentrated areas of prison growth in the country. Um, and so I think there's the hope that uh, if people tune into this program, even if they're not part of um, the prison community, um, they're hearing stories about people who are incarcerated and maybe once they humanize um, incarceration, that they'll resist in some way um, the growth of prisons in the region. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's the problem with most yeah. prison narratives is that there is no humanization involved, and and that's where we run into problems a lot when it relates to that. Yeah, it's very important work. But as I say, the nice thing about, as you point out, these a lot of these organizations are available easily online, WMMT. Mm-hmm. You can listen to them online with no problem and um, duck in and out when you want because, as you point out, um, it's all volunteer-based it, you know, there are people who literally come in and do a show for a couple hours, maybe once a week, once every couple of weeks, and they do what pretty much can play whatever music they want, mm-hmm. you know. So it's vest- definitely community at its finest. Yeah, absolutely. So then we got, I mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to come back to it as mm-hmm. your resource list. Now, obviously, one of the things you say in the, your acknowledgments, you discuss how you were able to come up with some of these things. But one of the things that's so great about it is, particularly if anyone's interested in learning more just from reading your book on top of that, is you break the list down and do, and it's more some popular, mm-hmm. some academic, video, all kinds of material where people... Um, can dip in and gain more insight. How did you develop the list or what did you use to decide, okay, this, I need to make sure I include this? Uh, it was, you know, it's a, it was a little bit haphazard to be honest. Um, so because I just finished doing, doing a PhD, I was, um, I don't know, felt, felt a certain liberation, um, not having to do all those kind of like, um, academic citations that can sort of weigh weigh down um, a manuscript that I could just. I'm an academic make. librarian, so I know exactly <laughs> you what it. you're talking. So I was uh, I was really enjoying the the kind of spirit that I could just make recommendations, and of course, all the things that I cite in the text appear in the back. Um, in a very straightforward way, I can thank Chris Alfred, who's a Kentucky-based writer, uh, who helped me do a lot lot of development. Um, in the fiction and poetry section. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because I'm an academic, um, I really, it was really important for me to get a second opinion about some of the resources that I recommended in, in other realms. And he was very helpful and, and gave me suggestions for those. Um, and again, like academic books, no problem. I can recommend a million <laughs> to you. Um, but what I find uh, most exciting about the resource list is the uh, documentary and art section, mm-hmm. um, because so much the narrative of, of Appalachia when you think about it is so visual uh, so I wanted to give people an idea of a visual uh, map you know resources that they could to, to find easily you know um, that was another thing that that really informed the way that I developed resources is can you find this easily so yes uh, lots of um, Apple shop documentaries that are cited in the back for example 
are online free or you can pay like a dollar to stream them. Um, the photographs, the artist, you know, you can at least see like one or two, you know, a handful of their images online somewhere. Um, there's games, video games, which, um, you know, obviously are not free to play, but give you a different way to connect to Appalachia. Um, and it was, a, it was especially important for me to list um, that giant list of organizations in there too, um, just as sort of a roll call of people who have made a mark on the region. Um, and if you wanted to learn more about the region, you can easily pick, you know, two or three of those organizations out, kind of Google them, read about them and start your journey from there. Yeah, my most of the time when I do interviews for this for the New Books Network, most mm -hmm. of mine are film related. So I've talked to a lot of writers about documentaries. Mm -hmm. So documentaries, I agree with you. They they can be, and there's there is a rich, and I can use that word from just from looking at your list. There are a mm -hmm. rich number of documentaries going back many years that are absolutely spectacular as to how they illustrate the area, and they're definitely worth reaching out for. Even some that are a little more tough to find. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and there are, you know, resources like uh, Stranger with a Camera, which is a very fine documentary about Eastern Kentucky and about poverty pictures. Um, and that is still, you know, a documentary that people in the region screen. Um, I think Apple Shop is screening it next month, for example. So these are still, you know, resources that when we want to, you know, start a conversation, these are the resources that we use. So what is, um, what's the present and future for you? I mean, obviously you're going to continue to write, but I know you also have a lot of other activist um, activities, and I think you just became the editor for the West Virginia <laughs> University um, publications. The uh, Yeah, the West Virginia University Press. Press, right. Oh, gosh. So there's a lot going on. Um, so I'll be starting, hopefully, my next book, soon it's um more or less under contracts and it's going to be uh, another another you know public history piece um and then my partner and i uh have a little company called passel and what we like to do with passel is um we like to help uh, groups in appalachia organizations in appalachia um interpret underrepresented history um connecting them to tools or resources or things like that. So for example, um, we'll help a heritage organization put uh, an endangered building on the National Register of Historic Places, things of that nature. So that work is really, really, really important to me. And um, I've already, and we've already developed some really strong partnerships to do work through in the, in the coming year. Um, like you said, I just became an editor at large of, uh, at West Virginia University Press, particularly um, with titles about Appalachian studies and public mm. history, which is what I do. So I'm looking forward to, um, you know, if people were uh, inspired by my writing or, or, you know, thought it was interesting to um, work with them um, and maybe, you know, help get their some of their writing out into the public as well. Uh, and uh, adjacent to all of that, I'm an organizer for the Democratic Socialist of America. Um, I, and I organize through Charlottesville, Virginia. So there's lots of work that we're doing for the coming uh, for the coming year as well. Yeah, and if, as a side benefit to your book, I have to to say I I discovered Belt Publishing. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I missed them, but 
Um, it's just unbelievable, the material. And they cover, like we, we talked about, I mean, yeah, it's Appalachia, but belt as in rust belt. And mm -hmm. uh, so obviously they've, they do a lot of books and, and material related to my old stomping grounds in Cleveland, but also the Midwest and all those areas which are going through their own uh, economic and issues that are all related to changes in 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 a lot of things over the years. So definitely a publisher that I'm glad that uh, at the very least I learned more about them and I'm already looking at specific titles that I'm going to yeah. be reading from them. Yeah, their titles, I mean, their range of titles are great. Um, they have, uh, the flip side of that is there's uh, Belt Magazine, which is, um, uh, you know, articles and photo essays, uh, magazine style about uh, the Rust Belt. So they do tremendous work. And then, of course, uh, another organization I wanted to make sure we mentioned briefly was 100 Days in Appalachia. It's mm -hmm. another, it's a website, but also, it, as the name implies, they were only supposed to really publish for, right. a, put something together for 100 days, and they're still going strong. So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, for sure. I, that's another one I wanted to mention. But anyway, mm -hmm. well, I must tell you, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I hope you have continued success in your work. I'm certainly <laughs> looking so forward much. to reading more that you write and, and, things that you point one of the great things i feel like you, you do a good job of pointing us to different things to continue what we learn we don't just read the book and say okay we're done that there's oh, that's much so important. more Thank to you. read and and to go from there that's why things like resource lists are so important mm -hmm. to me and when i see one i say oh i gotta read see what i need to, to find next so oh i think that's exactly what i wanted to do thank you so much so thank you for joining me and mm -hmm. i really appreciate your time oh thanks so much take care bye I hope you found my discussion with Elizabeth to be both interesting and illuminating and causes you to rethink your previous ideas about Appalachia. This is Joel Cherney for the New Books Network.